Someone's in trouble. Where? Who knows? Stand by for emergency materialization. Hi! Hold to open. Yes, and what do you do? I push! We had to make it a pretty big one. All right, let's get on with it. I walk in eternity. What's that supposed to mean? It means here comes the drums! So here it comes, the sound of drums. Hello, everyone. Out there in Doctor Who land, <laughs> this is Polta Open, your favorite Doctor Who podcast. I am Pete Paschal. I'm Chris Taylor, and we are on a quest to watch all of Doctor Who in random order. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're pretty far into the quest now, wouldn't you say, Pete? What are we, 20, would, 20 episodes into this thing? 20 episodes in, wow. That's like... Something like that. This is an epic season-long adventure. Yeah. Um, 20 episodes. Yeah, we're getting there. We're, we're doing okay. We're getting to the point where we might actually start running into stuff we've already done. <laughs> Speaking of epic season-long adventures, I don't know if you have uh, been following the, the news about the upcoming uh, next season of, of Doctor Who. Do sure tell me about it. I heard there's a guy named Dan, but that's about all I know. Yes, uh, that's uh, that's the new companion. And mm-hmm. uh, it is, but it was revealed this week at Comic-Con, uh, the virtual Comic-Con, that uh, Chris Chibnall is writing the, the whole season as one story. Oh, my. Yes, which, of course, to veteran Whovians like ourselves, immediately puts us in mind of Trial of a Time Lord. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Even though that was kind of like really four different things. It really uh, was. It sounds like this is not that. It sounds like he's, he's trying to say that this is very definitely one ongoing story that has beginning, middle, and end, and will go to many different locations. Um, but yeah, I wonder I'm why excited. he feels this is the time for that. Um, <laughs> you know, doing the, I guess, the Game of Thrones style or, you know, any number of shows that, that you really have to get into um, and, and follow. I always yeah. kind of felt Doctor Who had a, you know, it's episodic quality, even though there's certainly like obviously several parts to many adventures. It's uh, being able to sort of check in for a little while and check out. I thought that was sort of like, you know, one of the one of the good things about it. You kind of get both the dedicated fans like ourselves and the casual mm-hmm. viewer. Well, it's it's been a, it's been a trend, right? And you know, since since Star Trek returned a couple of years ago, it's it's been mm. going with season long arcs rather than uh, monster of the week episodes, right? Um, or episodic. But some would say that that yeah. hasn't been a good choice for Star Trek. Yeah, that, yeah, you know, and it may not be a good choice with Doctor Who. But you know what? I'm I'm always in favor of more experimentation. I am um, too. And it's kind of like <laughs> fandom is split already. And I think that's true of like most <laughs> franchises. You you have these sort of schisms and especially when creative teams, new creative teams take over and people will say, you know, whatever, not my doctor or not my Star right. Trek, you know, not my Law and Order SBU. Well, I don't think they say that. But um, <laughs> only if they know, did. That was <laughs> if only, and both only. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, and I'm sure this this one is going to be divisive as well. It wouldn't be Doctor Who if it wasn't. But mm-hmm. it's interesting because it does sort of address the the concern that we when when we were doing this podcast about the uh, ep- various episodes in the last season, like Spyfall, Fugitive of the Jadoon, and the Timeless Children. Um, 
I think our complaint almost every time was that there's there's not enough time to get into this really knotty, thorny story mm-hmm. uh, with with its massive changes to Doctor Who canon, right? And I think we both felt at the time that these these changes were given short shrift. Um, so if the idea of the new season is in any way to to address the the the, the new canon of of who the Doctor is and what her history is. Uh, I, th- I think that's that's potentially all for the good, and I think it's also what what Chris Chibnall is used to. It's where he he works best. It's you know his his uh, most successful show is obviously Broadchurch, mm. yeah. uh, which was Preacher. that season long. You know, mm-hmm. um, still still somewhat episodic, but definitely focused on the season long arc. So I'm excited to see what he can do with that, and and with the new. Uh, the new companions. I'm excited to see uh, how how uh, American Doctor Who fans are going to feel about a a very strong uh, Liverpool accent uh, aboard the TARDIS. Uh, That's Dan, I take it. Yes, uh, played by uh, ah. John John Bishop. Dan's a Liverpool. The, yeah, he's he's very scouse. I don't know if you, uh, I, I can send you some clips of his his comedy, but he's. He's basically a, a stand-up comedian um, uh, with an extremely mm. strong local Liverpool accent, um, and very funny, and and did sort of try to take over this Comic Con panel a little bit. Or at least a lot of the questions were directed at him. Um, and well, uh, speaking of Game of Thrones, they they also have uh, uh, the guy who played Grey Worm is uh, has a major role in this season as well. So nice. Well, on the uh, accent front. I feel like New Who is making up for um, years, decades of standard sort of English received pronunciation that the original series. I mean, we've we've been in the original series for the last several episodes, um, and I got to say, you know, the I, the the accents. There's not a lot of variety <laughs> back in the old days of the BBC, and I feel like New Who has been making up for that ever since it cast Chris Eggleston way back in 2005. Yes, lots of planets over north, uh, and then we had you know some very Cockney companions, and and now we're we're, we're very much uh, in the in the Sheffield era, mm, uh, you know, the Sheffield Dr. era, the Sheffield era, <laughs> you know. Let's uh, rename Dr. it that. <laughs> exactly, the Sheffield fam era. Uh, you know, with, with the exception of Graham, everyone's got this thick Yorkshire accent, and the Doctor's adopted this Yorkshire accent. I have this. Whole, yeah, I, we we've talked about this in past. My whole theory of the the Doctor and his slash her accents um, mm-hmm. being influenced by the last person they met, either before their regeneration or immediately after. That's a whole other story. Uh, but it's interesting, and not not to get ahead of ourselves, but in uh, the story that we're going to be talking about this week, Planet of Evil, that there's also this sort of lack of accent diversity. <laughs> It, yeah, you you have a lot of the members of the uh, the spaceship that uh, the, the Doctor and, and Sarah meet, uh, and they've they've all got very upper class British accents, right? And mm. and some of their upper class British accents are slightly less upper class, and those those are the working class <laughs> people. Those are the those are the grunts. <laughs> Always, that's how you can tell. Yeah, it's kind of funny how often, um, you know, and not just in Doctor Who, but, you know, the, the stories would essentially have a bunch of people as guests in an episode uh, in a ship or in a building somewhere, a base under mm-hmm. siege. And it's like guy one, guy two, guy three, guy four. And they're pretty much yes. interchangeable down the round, you know. And um, 
there there was a while there. I feel like, it, particularly in the early two thousands, there was a very hard backlash against that, and that people like they just did like everyone had to be a weird, quirky character and even a different color. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I think I think we've evened out sort of at a place where it, it it makes sense. There's a good amount of character, but not so much variety that it's it's gratuitous. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, I'm sorry. It took so long to get here, though, Chris. Uh, and did. now we're here. We're uh, starting out here today with Planet of Evil, where it was just one of those, probably one of the first um, ships full of cookie cutter, similar, uh, similar stock character crew members. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with with the. Yeah, the, the uniform wise uh, also could use some work. Uh, yeah, the, the the disco soldiers. Uh, yeah. we'll, we'll definitely get to discussing that, uh, and you know, also how it's. I'm, I'm looking forward to discussing this because there is a, there is a fan theory that I came across that suggests that this is not the. Uh, well, it's not just the entirely forgettable uh, sort of you know mid season Tom Baker episode that that it is uh, a story that is known as. Um, mm. But it's also a kind of a new start for the Doctor, an interesting way, a new aspect of the Doctor. Um, yeah, so we'll get to that. Well, let's hold that. Let's hold that thought. Let's tease yeah. it out. Let's stretch it out. Let's but, you know, <laughs> exactly. Later in the show, we'll be discussing how Planet of Evil may have changed Doctor Who forever. Um, but first, let me talk about Casper. No. <laughs> <laughs> You will sleep like an antimatter monster (laughs) in one of these delicious... Sleep like anti-man in a black pool. (laughs) I'm just guaranteed they'll never sponsor us. But (laughs) we're here, 1-800-Mattress. But Casper the Friendly Ghost might sponsor this this episode. Ooh, Uh, absolutely. That's that's kind of what we get. Casper the Unfriendly Ghost. yeah, so so let let's set the scene a little. Um, All right, we we had just been to the tenth planet and the Crotons. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the tenth planet, we we had uh, we went viral with with one of our TikToks discussing the Cybermen, and we uh, that's why we just had a little special Cyberman episode. Right, um, we corrected the record to that. Yes, yeah, we we showed our accountability. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I think it was it was all all to the good. Honestly, there was so much engagement on that post, and a lot of people um, clearly seeing the show uh, and paying attention in the way sort of modern fans do. Even if they you know maybe not have watched it for thirty years, they do clearly mm. care about the characters, the monsters, the universe of this place that Doctor Who's creating. And it's it was just sort of really nice to see. And so when we came out and. Um, gave our response. Um, it was good to see uh, some some positivity, and, and and I just like the sort of um, the showing sort of the continuity of the Cybermen. And uh, you know, I thought our, our our secondary discussion, just throwing out some some of the theories around them, and uh, what what how fa- you know, exploring how fandom now sort of interacts with these franchises and sort of creates their own, almost like a almost like a multiverse of mm. uh, of timelines and theories. And the show can now sort of feed off that and, and pick off the best of it and, you know, to bring the sort of official canon in new directions, which is kind of a really cool modern phenomenon that yeah. uh, I, I, I think to see more of. 
Where we got to in the special episode is a very interesting point that, that there really isn't that much of a history of the Cybermen, mm. uh, certainly not compared to the Daleks that, that we can point to. And that, that's really an opening for the for the show to exploit, but but moreover for, for its secondary media to exploit, um, yeah. to, to really dig into. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, anyway, so the randomizer then took us from the Crotons to Planet of Evil. And Naturally. Planet of Evil, yeah, <laughs> of course it did. From from Troughton to Baker, from mid well late sixties to mid seventies, and it's it's astonishing to think, isn't it, that these these stories were just six years apart? Hmm. Because the difference that the 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 world has gone through and that Doctor Who has gone through, and you know, I think the the disco costumes of the space soldiers. A sort of one wall element of it, but it just everything looks different, and it's kind of psychedelic, and it's so colorful. Uh, well, and part of it is like it's funny. Like we go from Troughton to Baker, both of which mm-hmm. have been like known more for their comedic um, presence most mm-hmm. of the time uh, than sort of the the seriousness. Even though, like, I think the for both of them in different ways, their, their natural comedy strengthens the seriousness. But um, if you look at the Crotons, I would, I think you like, you can easily make the case that it's fairly light in terms of tone, particularly compared to this. And it's not yeah. just the episodes, it's the era and the doctor. And I think that matters a lot here. And, you know, not just all of that, but like, there's also obviously uh, there've been wholesale changes in, the creative teams and the producers notably. Mm-hmm. So this, this episode is one of the first, it's not the first Philip Hinchcliffe episode, but it is it's some, it's some consider it the first true Hinchcliffe episode because he had complete control over it from start to finish. It wasn't just right. him adapting scripts that had been written for the show. Um, and you could kind of feel it. I mean, I mean, part of it's the set design, part of it's sort of the, the inevitability themes that are sort of, Explored throughout, but it's it's dark. It's, mm. it, it gets into some grim places, and I can sort of see why. Um, well, we we should probably talk about the actual story in a minute, but like <laughs> you can see why they made the choice at the end to sort of pull back from having a really yeah. dark ending. Yeah, it it definitely we're definitely entering the the gothic horror era of mm. Doctor Who, right? Um, for sure, That's with with Hinchcliffe at all. But, yeah, uh, we're just a little bit away from like the talons of Wang Chang and image yeah. of Fendal and these kind of gothic horror kind of moments that were really creepy, I found. And I found this one was kind of an er version of that. You know, it's not quite yeah. as memorable as those other ones, but it's like there's there's a lot of like setting the scene here for the doctor going to some dark places. And um, yeah. Yeah. So speaking of setting the scene, a regular feature on the show. Is called TLDW. Too either too long, don't watch, or too long, didn't watch. <laughs> Sorry, too long, don't watch. It's too never long, so long watch. you shouldn't watch. Sorry, that's how my... long it is, you should watch. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I think that was a uh, Freudian slip in terms of how I feel about Planet of Evil. Oh um, man, yeah. Uh, but TLDW is the name of our segment, and we we take it in turns to. Have a game show moment where you have 30 seconds per episode. And uh, in this case, the four episodes. So our standard two minutes. And uh, this week it is Pete's turn to summarize. <sighs> is, it, is it really? <laughs> is it okay. I've got to close out my tabs. I've got to hide everything. Yep. 
to be fair, um, there's not a lot of plot. Uh, really, when it comes down to it. I mean, yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's stuff. I don't know. I, I, I feel like I'm not the guy who should be doing this one. But yes, there's, there's, a, <laughs> there's a lot of subtlety and then mm-hmm. not so subtlety and repetition. But it's Doctor Who, you know, you expect that. All right. Let's, uh, right, let's get, get into it. it. I'm going to start the timer. Three, two, one. Now. Okay, so there's these guys on a planet, and they're mining something, and uh, it's almost about to be night, and they're worried about nights, but they got to get the minerals back to their ship. So um, they they try to sort of get the minerals out of the ground. In the meantime, the Doctor and Sarah come to the planet, but it's like 30,000 years in the future, way past where they wanted to be. And so what happens is the guys who are doing the mining, they get killed except for the actual leader who's, who's at the site, and then... Uh, this other ship comes to the, the planet, which is investigating all these deaths that are happening on this mining expedition. So what happens is they, the doctor and Sarah um, quickly realize they're sort of on the edge of the universe, a uh, well, very distant planet. And this guy is, is actually mining antimatter because it's, this is a planet's a boundary between our universe and an antimatter universe, but he's disturbed something, something conscious, something that is taking revenge for, for this plunder. And, at the end of episode two, the doctor is like at the place, the pit where this One thing minute. resides. And he, uh, he falls in and negotiates with it. He doesn't die. He negotiates with it. And he guarantees they're going to bring back all the antimatter so that uh, they, they'll, they'll be able to get away because they haven't been able to take off in the ship that came because there's antimatter on board. So he comes back, tells everybody this, that they need to get rid of the antimatter. They don't because the, the guy who's in the leader, he, he's, he's the, he wants to revitalize the civilization, reboot it with all this uh, incredible energy source. So there's a lot of back and forth on the ship of like, let's get rid of the antimatter. And now people are like, no, it's the doctor and Sarah. They're bad. They, let's get rid of them. And so there's, this is, there's a lot of all this, like, oh, we, uh, did we get rid of all the antimatter? I don't know. Like, where do you have any more? I don't, I don't know. And so they eventually get rid of it all because the guy who was the leader, he's actually transforming into one of these creatures. It's like anti-man, right? So they got, they got to get rid of him too. And they can't because they multiply, he multiplies into a bunch of these things. So the doctor actually has to take him in the thing and cures him of, of all that stuff. And so every, it's okay. And the ship doesn't get reflected back in crash and everything's okay. And the, the, the doctor and Sarah say, go bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Good, good shot. Yeah, uh, I needed like another ten or fifteen there, something like that. It was it was close. It was. It, it is. Was, it is tough to you know as as you were saying. I'm like, how how would I do this differently? I don't know. It it's tough with without sort of using the names of of the crew members, right? Vashinsky and Sorensen and Salamar. Uh, right. Like those those the big three prime movers of the plot. Um, yeah. So, um, and. Like Sorensen is a hard guy to crystallize because he's not really the bad guy. I mean, he right, is. So, he's just this misguided dude. So Sorensen's uh, the scientist who was on the planet all along, and he's sort of you know being being changed by it, and he's the the one who sends out the distress signal. And I have to say, the thing about Sorensen that I could not get past is the fact that for the entire story, he's wearing this like brown dirty brown velour kind of tracksuit mm. which is just 
like it's it's covered in marks. It just sort of, you know, to to us, it reads a guy standing on the street begging for loose change, right? It just, it kind of maybe it looked different in the seventies, but he does not look like someone that you would like immediately trust every word of, as as the crew of the rescue ship do. Like you know, they trust everything he says. Yeah, just believe the doctor at every point, and he's just kind of this, you know, dirty, gross guy. Just like, uh, I I don't know if this is <laughs> like five minutes in the seventies when those those brown tracksuits were actually appealing. But well, and I don't mean to like be I, we shouldn't be too unkind to the actor Frederick Yeager, no. I think is his name. Yeah. But I mean, I I. I I hate to pile on, but he's like he's kind of this dumpy guy, and he's got the five o'clock shadow. And I get that he's yeah. like he's 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 playing a guy who is like stressed out. He's more of like an Einstein type, like the type of guy who just works eighteen hour days because he wants to, because he's so dedicated to what he's doing. So he shouldn't be polished. I get it, um, but at the same time, he's also like the performance. He makes some odd choices. I would say because mm. you, you kind of want you kind of want to see him go over the top a bit. And he's almost weirdly distant, dejected, subtle, quiet at places that you never, I, I found myself kind of wanting to see that sort of eyebrow raise or mustache twist or like at least coming close to flying off the handle, you know, as, as sort of a, you would expect from a madman. And it never really happens, um, which is a weird, weird also- choice, I thought. Yeah, and he's he's not he doesn't have the arrogance that we would expect from someone in that position because he is uh, I don't know if you like me Pete got incredible inferno vibes here mm. uh, having Stalin? just yes having just mm. done inferno which is all about a scientist who is driven to uh, the brink of madness and to you know turning into a creature himself because he was looking for an energy solution for the planet and here we are again you know. Uh, five years later with another scientist who is really driven to looking for this energy solution. That's why he wants to take those antimatter rocks right. away from the planet. Um, it's definitely it's always, those... it's always energy, which right? is, you know, it, it, it could be today if you think about it, right? It like, could be. It could that's be, always an ongoing definitely, thing. We talked about this with Inferno, like the, the, the British hmm. obsession in the 70s with, with finding new energy sources. And uh, that, that seems to be what Doctor Who was obsessed with as well, like reflecting our our fears and our three-day weeks and our you know long lines for the gas station hmm. uh, or well, petrol it's station. Good you, good you brought up Stallman. I think it's a good yeah. comparison, and I think it's worth unpacking. Like, why does Stallman work and why doesn't Sorison work as well? Uh, and I think it it's partly performance because, like, mm. <laughs> the guy who played Stallman, his name escapes me now, but. Um, he, he just, he is such a jerk. Like, I mean, you yeah. just, you love to hate that guy. And he he's a jerk it. because and not, uh, because he also has like the doctor. Yes. As sort of a, an adversary, but also the Sir Keith character as an mm-hmm. ongoing kind of foil for him to really bounce up, bounce that personality off of. And Sorensen doesn't really have anybody, right? Like he's there mm-hmm. and he has his crew, but they're like the people who are already on the planet and the mining expedition are killed off right away. So we never get to know any of them. All the crew, except for Vashinsky and uh, Salar, Salaman, Salamar, Salamar. Salamar, yes. I <laughs> Salamar. kept forgetting it too. So I, I, I just kept wanting to say Salamander. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, you know, uh, well, let's talk about Salamar. I mean, he yeah. is, 
he is the ultimate disco spaceman. I mean, mm. what what is going on with that décolletage? I I don't know. <laughs> and those those silver shoulder pads that, and we're supposed to take him seriously as the commander of this expedition while he is wearing something that makes him look like I don't yeah, know. He's, a just, he's just going clubbing. Yeah, he's like, like a reject from an Earth, Wind, and Fire video, and it just. Wow! It, like, how can you take yourself seriously in that role? I was surprised to discover that that this guy uh, is is a Doctor Who veteran, Prentice Hancock. Uh, yeah, he's been in many other uh, uh, stories, and he's he was in Space nineteen ninety nine as well. Like he, but he does not strike you as a good character actor. <laughs> like he is, he's got one setting, yeah, and that setting is toxic masculinity. <laughs> um, <laughs> he displays it throughout by the way we're, we're in what the 33rd century here 34th century i think technically 37th because it's 37th. like you see it's the sign and if you assume those are actual years like because the sign at the very beginning there's the gravesite, and it, someone puts down a thing and i think it's like 37 uh, i don't want to get it wrong but it's like 166 so yeah it's the thir- i guess the 38th century thing about it Right, so we we got to the thirty eighth century, and and all all crews are still filled with white men. Um, right. Actually, and, not uh, even thirty eighth. Oh, come to think of it, three hundred eightieth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, because so it's not three thousand; it's thirty seven thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which it's makes sense. So like, I wouldn't say it necessarily makes sense, and I, I actually I might be giving the writers a little too much credit to to sort of say they thought about this, but maybe they did. Because, uh, you know, they were starting to think about this as more and more of a, like, a, a universe. But, like, the fact that they're they're, tack- they're talking about intergalactic travel, right? Which is rare, actually rarely referenced in Doctor Who. You don't really mm-hmm. he- hear a lot about uh, casual travel among galaxies. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what they're talking about here. You know, they're talking I- about, like, we're way past, like, not just the Milky Way, but, like, even distant galaxies. Um yeah, so, and, and uh, you know, it's it's sort of weird that so the, the planet is called Zeta Minor, hmm. and apparently it's it's right on the edge of space, whatever that means. Like hmm. this is somehow the the edge of the uh, whatever the name is of the human empire that that has begun to explore it. Yeah, what does I that actually mean you know the edge of like this is not a linear thing. Well, yeah, that's exactly like it's it's. I got to say, like, as a kid, I thought it was cool. And this is speaking sort of more of someone who's just starting to really take in, had at the time I was really starting to take in the scale of the universe, right? Like, wow, like the distances between galaxies are vast and the distances between clusters and then super clusters. Like, and if you could theoretically go to the edge of the universe, like how mind bogglingly far that would be. Um, mm-hmm. but if you think about like what they're doing here with this antimatter universe, it just feels like a really unsophisticated take on like another dimension, right? Like that you just go far enough out and you'll get there, which seems like the wrong thing, right? Like it's always now, like ever since, you know, you're like, well, if you want to, it's usually some dimensional thing you're going to wherever you are. Like, it doesn't really matter where you are exactly. There's, it's not, it's not actual space you're traveling to get to something that fundamentally different. Um, it, it does annoy me with Doctor Who when the writers just don't seem to be trying and they just seem to have reached into a grab bag of, of sci-fi jargon and they just pull something out. Like, oh, planet 
name Zeta Minor. That sounds good and science fictiony. Oh, it's it's an antimatter planet on the edge of space. That sounds good. Like there's, there's no thinking through this. There's no sort of respect for the concept. It's just sort of yeah, that sounds good. But yeah, in the, and, and, and you know, in, in their defense, like today you could easily research things on the internet and just there's so much pop science uh now that you know it would be expected that anyone on the show probably read like any number of books by brian green or michio kaku or whatever and, and know something whereas back then i mean pop science wasn't really a thing and just knowing finding someone who knew who could name more than three other planets in the solar system mm. Was 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 a thing. That said, you know, like yeah, certainly if you're a writer for Doctor Who, it would be an expectation you'd you'd know so more to, of this stuff. Just to go back to the the lack of diversity on this crew, because it does mm. it, it, in in even though it is all white men, there there is one character uh, that it does have the the token black guy, uh, mm-hmm. Ponty, who unfortunately uh, you know follows sort of the unfortunate sort of subconsciously racist trope of, you know, you kill off the black guy early in the story, hmm. uh, which is unfortunate. But Ponty is played by an actor named uh, Lewis Mahoney, who I immediately recognized as uh, he's in Faulty Towers. Oh. Uh, if, in uh, the, the famous episode, The Germans, uh, hmm. where, you know, Basil goes crazy and, and sort of, you know, insults Germans staying in his hotel. He's, he's the doctor... So ironically, he plays a doctor in a different show, uh, who you know says that that Basil needs rest in the hospital, right? And uh, uh, so he has that that sort of famous bit role in that. I did not know though until I looked him up that he's also in Blink. Oh wow! Oh, is he? Yes, the guy. Wait he's a minute, Billy, Billy Shipton. Yes, uh, who Sally Sparrow falls in love with and asks her out on a date, and then in the next scene. He's an old man, and the old man is played by by Lewis Mahoney. Wow, that came and, full circle. Uh, That's awesome, right? Right, and a little sad news: he died in uh, June last oh, year whatever. at the age of eighty-one. Oh, it's too bad. Yeah, uh, many many years after his on-screen death in in Blink. Hmm. Um, but yeah, what what a trip, man! To to return to Doctor Who after all those years. Yeah, it must have been fun. Well, I'm super grateful they. Yeah. They, he did, and they they just thought to do that. Yeah, um, and to, to go from one of the least memorable stories, right? Evil, to 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 the yeah, most memorable, an absolute legend. Yeah. So yeah, the kind of redeemed. I mean, you know, the show yeah. redeems itself a little bit in that way. That's awesome. So when when he fell, so he dies because he falls into the black pool, which I'm sure. Like they, they use that as a reference to Blackpool, the town. <laughs> Do people die when they go there? Yeah, there I mean, like a... kind of... <laughs> Blackpool is like a very, very low rent Vegas for, for yeah. British people. It's like, well, it's yeah. funny. It's also, not to get too far on a tangent here, it's the setting of the Nightmare Fair, which oh, is yeah. uh, a big sequel, was intended to be a, the, the sequel to The Celestial Toymaker, uh, was never oh, produced. Yeah. It was a missing script from the Colin Baker years, but it's actually on big finish and has been adapted for audio. And uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of jokes about Blackpool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, the, uh, the English predisposition to laugh at, at Blackpool and Mm. to any references to it, but yeah, I love the idea that, you know, the the writer didn't necessarily know his sci-fi concepts, but he, he knew to get in a dig at Blackpool. 
in, in nice. Well, you gotta you gotta dig those cities, man. I can't, if, I were, if I were writing it, that t- Toronto would not come out very very good in whatever script I was writing. Yes, the, the Toronto pool and the Planet of Evil. Um, so the, there are there are two influences for this story, uh, mm-hmm. and I use the word influences advisedly, um, but they are uh, Forbidden Planet and mm-hmm. uh, Doc and Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Yeah, um, uh, Pete, how how familiar are you with with either of those? Um, well, Jekyll and Hyde. Well, I've seen <laughs> I've seen the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That's <laughs> my shame. Um, no, actually, I I, I I think that movie's a little bit underrated, but um, and obviously based on the graphic novel as well. Um, and it's just certainly the story. Everyone sort of knows the original story, even if I'm sure. not sure if I ever actually saw it slash read it. Uh, it was, uh, but you know, everyone knows sort of the yeah. And I think the. The thing that people instinctively know about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is that it's really a, a metaphor, mm-hmm. right? It's about sure. the good and evil in man. And there are many interpretations of which, which particular good and evil, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson was actually writing about at the time. You know, people have sort of uh, made up the, the idea that he was on cocaine while he was writing it. Like, the, you know, the, uh, Edward Hyde was was sort of a manifestation of himself on cocaine. No, not really. He was just sort of interested in, in the good and evilness of everyone, yeah. right? The dual nature of humanity, and specifically the subconscious, which is something that was starting to come out when he was writing Jekyll and Hyde, like you know the eighteen nineties. Like you know, Freud was was starting to be active, and Vienna, and you know, the, this whole notion that we have a subconscious that we can't control uh, was starting to come out. In, in Forbidden Planet, it's like even more explicit because the creature in Forbidden Planet that's sort of the the forerunner of the uh, of anti-man mm. in Planet of Evil is called the creature from the id. <laughs> like literally using a Freudian concept. <laughs> uh, and it is, you know, so the the story of Forbidden Planet is that the, the, uh, the there's a professor, Dr. Morbius, who lands on this planet and he uses this sort of ancient technology and unbeknownst to him uh, this ancient technology is producing this monstrous version of his id at night that goes out and kills people um so you can see like planet of evil definitely supposed to reference that like the the, the creature the, the the way it's sort of created with the color separation overlay looks very much like the creature in forbidden planet right but the one thing they forgot to bring is the metaphor yeah like in, in both of those cases, in, in Jekyll and Hyde and Forbidden Planet, the monster is a manifestation of one person, one person's subconscious. So if you had it that, you know, anti-man or whatever is a manifestation of Sorensen, uh, as it sort of is at the end, like there are multiple versions of him at the end. I yeah, but they're it, all kind of confusing. these carbon copies that, yeah. you know, it's just, just to produce the crisis. Um, it's nothing, yeah, and nothing really sophisticated about it. Exactly. There's no no intent to produce any sort of metaphor here, any sort of deeper commentary on the nature of man or the subconscious. No, it's just, <laughs> yeah, we we got to have a monster. Yeah, I, I get that, and I, I think it is. Uh, if your expectations are sort of set by those, um, not just those uh, works, but 
um, better realizations of this idea in sci-fi. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking specifically of a couple of Star Trek episodes, uh, The Enemy Within, where Captain mm-hmm. Kirk is split into two, obviously very Jekyll and Hyde, as well mm-hmm. as the, it's the Star Trek's own take on this idea of an antimatter universe, which is the alternative factor. Um, I wouldn't mm-hmm. count Mirror Mirror in that stuff, like the mirror, because that's kind of almost like a separate thing. Um, let's let's right, put so- that aside. But like, it's not the um, same as an antimatter universe, right? That's a whole other concept. Yeah, so 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 I think those were better sort of metaphors for this, and I I think it's taking the most sort of basic spectacle friendly parts of Forbidden Planet and Doctor Jekyll and put, just sort of throws them in for fun. Uh, but it, it's kind of fun, I, you know, to defend the story a little bit. Like I remember as a kid being kind of hella scared of like the. I know they're kind of like they were glowy. They almost look like gummy bears in his eyes when he pulls his hands back. And it's like, mm. oh, it's God, a little, yeah, the eyes super creepy. Yeah. It's because it's a little unexpected. Cause you're not quite tricky. You're, you're almost, you're ready for the contact lenses like something, mm. but then it's like, Oh wow. They're just like these weird glowy eye thingies. How do um, they, I'm not even sure how they did that effect. I think they just painted his eyelids and then it was like, yeah. A, a special kind of light you shine that doesn't, you know, screw up the shadows or whatever, or maybe just like some, you know, doing the green screen on just the eyelids. Mm. So that's, I believe that's how they did it. Um, and what was I going to say? Oh, so, okay. Little, little note about this story. So my son, uh, he's 11 years old. He likes Dr. Who, but up until very, very recently, he just did not want to engage with the classic series. Uh, and I wasn't going to like push it on him, even though I grew up on it. I was just super glad he liked the new series. So now that in this podcast, he's noticed that I'm watching more and more original who he's gotten interested. And this mm. is the first classic series episode. I watched in its entirety with him. Ooh. And he thought the stuff on the ship when Sorensen was loose was really cool. Cause it reminded him of among us. <laughs> so it's like because it 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 plays a little bit on you know the classic doctor who trope of like oh the doctor and the companion get blamed for the real bad guys yeah um and they're constantly like did they kill them no they couldn't have they're here well what about this and then you know it's 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 sort of reminding him a lot of like well who's the imposter like well this guy was over there he couldn't have been him and i i helped this guy and he's the scientist like so um, you know, if you kind of see it a little bit as this this meta who done it, you know, I, I I think you 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 might you might have some fun. Uh it's just mm-hmm. too bad there's not enough color among the other crew members to really make that sort of the fun thing it is. Yeah. I mean it's so okay. Or it could have been. This, it really could have been a lot better, right? I mean it's yeah. my, my my immediate response to watching Planet of Evil was I, I like if, uh, Doctor and Sarah don't have much to do in this. That's sort of a, a common critique of this story. But yeah. I kind of just like them hanging out on the planet. Uh, it's an amazing set. When oh, you yeah. see them walking through it. Yeah, uh, let's talk about uh, that, man. Yeah. That set is a, was epic. And you kind of can tell right away. Like, you're like, you know, even, even if you're not used to Doctor Who's sort of relatively cheap look, <laughs> um, like I think if you're just sort of looking at this as like, oh, it's it's a it's a piece of television from the seventies, you're like, oh wow, you know, like I, I really get the atmosphere they're going for here. It's like kind of scary and grim, and the jungle, yep. and 
Uh, that's wow. And kind of psychedelic well, as well. I mean, mm-hmm. this is, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to suggest that our, uh, uh, listeners in uh, who happen to be in uh, weed legal states might like to um, experience Doctor Who uh, or this particular story of Doctor Who in, in an altered state, but it it might also be be quite fitting given that there's not really much plot, but there's a lot of lovely, interesting visuals, very very mm. colorful, and you know Tom Baker basically goes into this LSD trip when he he jumps into the antimatter pool. Mm. Uh, so that, that's kind of fun and interesting. So visually very interesting. Yeah, you luckily know, you had a friend with some some lemon slices and <laughs> <laughs> right, waiting for him. All right, dude. Exactly. Pulled his hair over the toilet. Don't don't go tripping into Blackpool's kids, um, mm. or go tripping in Blackpool. Um, but also, I mean, there's this fun sort of almost new series esque dialogue between them, right? When when the Doctor brings up Shakespeare, kind of randomly. Hmm. And uh, they they muse about the fact that Doctor says Shakespeare wasn't a very good actor, and Sarah's like, "Oh, well, maybe that's why he became a writer." And Buck's like, "Yeah, I hadn't thought of that." Um, <laughs> Such a writer line, right? <laughs> <laughs> you can't make it as an actor, graduate to a writer. Um, but another no. interesting thing about the Doctor in this, uh, apart from the fact that that he loses his scarf, um, right? It's a weird one for that. Weird. Yeah. Apparently, it was just easier for the special effects if he didn't have his scarf on. Um, yeah. One of the most interesting things. So this this comes from um, an excellent series of books that I can recommend called "Running Through Corridors" uh, by Robert Shearman and Toby Hadog. It's a, a name you might know from other Doctor Who podcasts. And Robert uh, Shearman they, wrote they, Dalek, right? Uh, right? I think I think you Am might be right about that. Yeah. Um, so uh, they they basically it's basically a running diary of them read uh, watching every single uh, episode. They, they they rather boringly I think take it in in order. Um, but anyway, they they when they're watching this, uh, Robert Sherman points out that he's like this this is all of a sudden this is new who Doctor here right because all of a sudden he goes from the old sort of version of what the doctor would be in a sciencey episode like this which is sort of learning alongside the viewer and learning alongside the explorers and perhaps he's sort of a little bit ahead of the game like just because his brain works faster but here we have the doctor as sort of almost new who like god mm-hmm. yeah right he all of a sudden he understands that this is an antimatter planet which nobody else gets and there's no sort of trail of breadcrumbs to lead him there. He just knows. No. You know, he just knows things about the universe. He eats jelly babies and he knows things. Um, or in this case, toffee, because he puts those antimatter uh, pebbles in a, in a toffee tin. Um, but it's, yeah, it's sort of like he takes that trip down down that black pit, has this, his conference with Anti-Man, and uh, uh, none of which we get to see. We don't get to yeah. see him promising as a time. By the way, he, he fluffed his line where he says, I, I gave my word mm-hmm. to Anti-Man. And he was supposed to say, I gave my word as a Time Lord, which is why Liz Sladen then says, you gave your word as a Time Lord? Uh, <laughs> but he doesn't, Tom Baker doesn't say the Time Lord part. It's a yeah. total fluffing of the line. And so Liz Sladen's left hanging out there to dry. And we're like, why did she say as a Time Lord? Yeah, um, Tom Baker had a few moments <laughs> like that. Not as many as William Arnold, but I, I, when we get to Legopolis, I'll, I'll, 
yeah. Once once he started having his three pint lunches, um, right. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. An so you think sort of the the godlike doctor is sort of more of a staple of New Who, and you're probably right. Yeah. Are you thinking yeah. of anything any doctor specifically who was more? I mean, it's it's very it's a very tenanty thing to do, right? Mm. I'm I'm the oncoming storm. Um, all of that stuff, you know. Where, yeah. where thinking of Asylum of the Daleks, like or uh, Pandorica opens, like the Doctor is suddenly. Uh, in New Who, an expert in the entire universe. Maybe not right. in the Eccleston years, but you know, increasingly with uh, Russell T. Davies, you sort of started seeing him as God with like Last of the Time Lords. Uh, it's very the, the Doctor as God kind of episode. Um, and this is, you know, according to right. these guys who have at this point been watching every single story, uh, you know, through Planet of Evil, they see this distinct new version of Who coming out kind of early. So. Uh, I like the idea that this, you know, kind of unassuming story that's kind of forgotten, kind of mid-list Baker era stuff yeah. uh, might have actually been the turning point. Interesting. Yeah, just to sort of um, give my impression, whenever, whenever someone talks about sort of a godlike doctor who's sort of way ahead of game and sort of playing an elaborate game of chess almost, mm. I think of Sylvester McCoy, actually, especially his yeah. later stories, which yep. were, were kind of like really very much lean into that. And that you, you find, you know, Andrew Cartmel at the time was, was apparently like that was his whole plan. And he had all this, this whole thing that he was laying out before it was canceled. Um, in new who, I think it comes and goes. I think you're right. I think some doctors more than others. And I think with Davies, it was more performative in that, like he would have these grand moments, but less of sort of the ongoing. I'm just sort of in charge three steps ahead of everyone. And I felt like Moffat was more that. So I do think yeah. you're right. I just think it was like Moffat was probably the epitome of it, in my view. Um, yeah, you, you might be right. There's more of a Moffaty thing, but certainly we we've seen that so much in New Who that the moment where the Doctor is like, "Stop! You don't understand what you're doing. You're meddling in forces beyond your comprehension." Yeah, and he does that a lot here. And what what it doesn't quite sync up with, and you can see this is a last minute decision, was Sorensen surviving. Yeah. And so Sorensen lives at the end because they thought a killing him was so grim, but like everything the doctor's doing and says all the dialogue implies like he's, he's a goner. Like even at the, what he, like he hands him. And this is actually, I think one of the best moments in the whole story when the doctor appeals to him as a scientist and is like, you've, you've taken, you've done this and you, you bear the responsibility. You take the antimatter. I mean, it doesn't make any sense as a story, as a plot element, because why, what are you doing handing the thing to the bad guy? I mean, he's not a bad guy, but it's like, at the very least, he could be debilitated at any time. Like, and you're trusting him to go do this? Like, that's just dumb. But the, the, the character moment is very real, and I thought it was excellent. Because mm. uh, Sorensen does it. He's like, yes. you know what? He's right, and I'm going to sacrifice not just my work, but myself for this. Now, in it's addition kind of a to dark that, moment when you when yeah. you think about it, it's a super dark moment because the doctor is trying to convince someone to commit suicide. Yeah, totally. And he just kind of stands there and lets him go and do it. Doesn't mm. even look at him. Um, but he's already already said that you know your what you've done to yourself with this um, this antidote thing, this anti quark vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> if only you got the Pfizer vaccine. You got the yeah. like the Pfizer anti-quark vaccine was you yeah. the two doses, then, you're done. 
<laughs> and then you get the Delta variant of antimatter, yeah. which is another problem. Yeah. So, uh, but he gets he he gave him the, but he said he's like he's already transformed. Like he's like you've already, like he's, he basically says like you've already screwed up your insides so bad you're you're dead you're you're gonna die anyway. So I think that's kind of what the doctor was sort of if, if you could justify his like go kill yourself like uh, <laughs> moment uh, like that you could say that's it. But then of course at the end he's just like he's the the anti the 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 creature cures him I guess just because all right thanks for giving me back my. My rocks. <laughs> yep. Here's your yeah, guy back. Guess I'll spit you out now. Now, can we can we talk for a minute just how weird the take on antimatter itself is here? Yes. Um, because even even at the time, right? Like, I think we knew what antimatter was, and yep. well, we had it, theories. Yeah. I, well, I mean, you know, like the Star Trek was was six seven years earlier, and mm. they had a whole star drive system based on the annihilation that happens when matter and antimatter collide and they never really quite spell it out, but it's strongly implied that like, you know, they have this dilithium thing that keeps it in a, keeps it from doing that or does it in a controlled mm-hmm. way. So it, it, you can't just put it in a metal container <laughs> and just like take it. Like you, I, you can't mine it per se. Like, I mean, what it, it just seemed really, like what? Like how, that's not how antimatter works. Those, um, those little silver sample buckets that Sorensen takes off the planet. That just—it felt so British to me. It's like these tiny little lunch pail things, <laughs> and it's just like that's how we're going to transport these rocks uh, yeah. in this this thing that looks like a a large squat thermos. Yeah, well, that's you kind of think like oh. We, I thought we ejected all the anti antimatter. I, I just got rid of all the beer. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Yeah, that and was this the is mistake. one of the reasons. This is one of the reasons why Salomar doesn't work as a character, right? Because he just sort of takes it as read that all the antimatter is off the ship because yeah. the underling said it was, and like the the idea that someone, perhaps the scientist who was super keen to get some to his homeworld, might have taken some, put it in his cabin, doesn't even begin to occur to him. Yeah, and the, like the whole Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of those two guys, the the, mm-hmm. the very um, you know working class dudes who do it, sort of implies they're they're so incompetent, right? Like they couldn't even keep right. track, which I guess is what that we're supposed to take from that. Um, Relly and Dahan are those two guys, and oddly enough, one of them was Davros. Yeah, Michael Wisher. <laughs> it's funny, like he does, he does this bit part, and even though he's he's now well known is like this legendary like you had a legend in Doctor Who and the, the, the original Davros like what a yep. performance uh, and here and, he's and this is his last appearance yeah now he's, he's this garbage disposal guy uh, yeah and yeah. and unfortunately a guy doing Indian accent at the very end over over the con yeah uh, very unfortunate yeah. Um, it's unfortunate that's <laughs> Is that his final performance, really? Oh, my God. Yep. yep. Oh, no. Okay. Well, and he no, did have Ross. <laughs> Can we talk more yeah. about that? Let's just focus on that. Yeah. Let's yeah focus yeah. on his years with Avros. Uh, but, yeah, the, the antimatter thing, I mean, it's the, there are, you're right, there's so many interest, more interesting ways that go, more scientifically accurate ways that go. Because we still don't know very much about what antimatter is. I've just been, mm. just been reading up for it in preparation for this podcast. I didn't know that there was uh, a legitimate interpretation of what antimatter is 
that says that it's they they might be regular particles going backwards in time. Oh wow, that's yeah. cool. Right? Isn't that a that's such a Doctor Who-ish thing that we yeah. could have explored? Like, you know, I feel like this this planet of antimatter, it just sort of, you know, it's it's wasted on this. Doctor Who's treatment of antimatter is wasted on the script. Well, and you'd have to, like, I mean, you wouldn't have a jungle set. You'd have to do a completely different thing, probably more along mm. the lines of the impossible planet. But, like, yeah. I remember reading once years and years ago, and I'm not sure if this is still taken seriously by science, but, like, they postulate that the universe, when when it was created, you know, there's no reason matter was created and not antimatter. Mm-hmm. That both were created, and the, the the distribution wasn't even, so one annihilated the other, and some survived. Like what survived is matter, but there's not a hard and fast rule that there can't be antimatter somewhere from that sort of natural, yeah. either from that sort of leftover from that sort of bang post big bang or just sort of naturally occurs somewhere but then you would have like this like antimatter planet that you couldn't really go down to but it would be a very kind of spark a a completely different very interesting story that would be a little more scientifically accurate yeah it would be like gamma ray flashes all over the place you know that that's an antimatter antiparticle um uh annihilation process uh, but yeah, exactly what you're talking about is still one of the biggest unsolved mysteries of physics is why is there more matter in the universe than antimatter? Right. And we still don't know why that's the case. Um, uh, scientists would love to know it. Like we're, we're, we're creating antimatter in, in, you know, places like CERN, um, you know, is mm. right on the cutting edge. Uh, you know, we're, we're making antiprotons in the lab. Um, uh, <laughs> Totally safely, guys. Yeah, don't worry. What could go wrong? It's all right. We won't take it off the planet in silver lunch pails. So we're all good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man! And I love just just right. Yeah, and again, like okay, sorry, not to pile on, not to pile on the scientific inaccuracies, but what force exactly is pulling the ship? Right? Yeah. Like it's not gravity. It's not electricity. Yeah, I guess so the ship is at the end, force. The ship is being pulled down to the planet because it's got antimatter on it, hmm. which makes no sense. But yeah, yeah, there's a lot of other scientific stuff. Also, you know, techno. This is a very techno babble heavy episode yeah. uh, story. Well, and you um, also just kind of wonder, like, what, like, what is the creature exactly? What does it care yeah. that a little bit of antimatter has been taken out of its universe? Right, like. Would would we care if beings from an antimatter universe came here to take bits of matter, tiny, tiny bits of matter from our universe, like a rock, yeah, and take it back to their universe as a limitless energy source? I'm like, dude, this sounds like a great sure. trade. Yeah, take take those pebbles. Sounds yeah. good. Yeah, oh, weird. It. Um, but there's one point at which Sarah sort of exclaims, "The Big Bang," as if we're supposed to know what she like. That's her response to what would happen if the Antimatter goes back to the planet that they're trying to take it to, right? Which was kind. Of, isn't that the idea? You know, not to destroy it, but like yeah, we want to release yeah. the energy in a controlled way so that would be. And then it? at the very end, just to make this whole thing a shaggy dog story, the Doctor gives Sorensen a whole other way to get energy, mm. which we're told. So I had a quick look at the at the Terrence Dix novel. 
the adaptation of this right. where it's like the, the the doctor when he does this is sort of aware that he's breaking a time lord rule um the energy idea that he gives him is just just use the kinetic energy of planets or planetary motion right so, it sounds a bit like a perpetual motion machine yeah, right <laughs> but um and, and he just says hey think about this and so it's like you're right we could use that well funnily why enough that, why were that, we bothering that whole <laughs> idea was what they ran with that idea in the novels so yeah. i didn't read this one but there's a novel zeta major mm. which essentially shows what happened next and he runs with the idea and his whole civilization pins their hopes on this this technology that takes the energy from planets and it, and it just doesn't work. <laughs> it just Thanks, doesn't work. Doctor. So to uh, to basically make it work, they go back to the original plan, which is let's get them antimatter. And you know, guess what, guys? This time it's Jurassic World. We've we've got our shit together. We figured <laughs> it out. We can do this. And they do it. And guess what? The Indominus Rex busts out yep. <laughs> and eats everybody. So you scientists were so preoccupied with whether you could harvest antimatter. Anyway, about whether you should. Zeta Major, past Doctor Adventure, uh, has the Davidson Doctor. So good times, good I would, Doctor. I, I yeah, I'm sort of interested to follow that. This is one of the things that I really love about Doctor Who is is that the fact that the attendant media can take sort of you know kind of crappy one-off stories like this and just spin it out a little bit further. Yeah. You know, even though it is kind of a, a too neat resolution in this, the doctor give away some time Lord secret in 10 words or less, uh, about <laughs> how to get perpetual motion. Um, well, it's, I, it's, I it's really nice like, yeah, deal with that. I, I really love it when, whether it's a series or, or something else shows like the, the, basically the butterfly effect, which is that the yes. little ripples left by the doctor create massive waves further down. And I think there's another, there's another episode coming up shortly after this one, which is the face of evil, another evil. Mm. They love evil <laughs> in this era, but uh, which, which shows exactly that, which is like, he, he did this thing somewhere. And then because he did it, the computer and, and the civilization evolved in a completely different way. And, the image of the doctor ends up being this, this God or something, which I thought was really, really clever. Mm. Um, yeah. I love that stuff. Yeah. And I mean, so we, we should deal with both the title planet mm -hmm. of evil, which is inaccurate. It's not an evil planet. Yeah. It just, you know, it's like, Hey, you, you came to, you came to this planet, you invaded it basically. Mm -hmm. And you, you tried to take its rocks and, it's it's perfectly fair. It's not evil at all for it to fight back. <laughs> um, but also, we should talk about our regular feature. What if the evil plot had succeeded? Which I think mm. is going to be a little hard to figure out in this instance what the evil plot actually is. Yeah, and yeah, and whose evil plot is it? Yeah. Um, so I totally it, agree that the title title doesn't fit at all. I honestly um, don't see in the evil sense any evil here, um, mm. except maybe. Uh, Salamar, <laughs> yeah, who's just kind of a upper class jerk and is more concerned of his own ego than uh, saving people. We haven't even got to the fact that Salamar tried to eject the Doctor and Sarah. In oh yeah, coffins. 
in Which coffins. Is... And we, we had that whole scene to lead up to it. Very, very odd scene, but I think a, a really nice one that actually kind of fleshed out the culture of this, uh, of this empire. Mm-hmm. Um, with the you know one one crew member dies and he has to he gets a burial at space, and they ask right. him like what what religion was he? Uh, oh, he was what what is it? Movellan Orthodox? They're not Movellans, <laughs> but it's um, I, I forget what the the name of this damn empire is in in Planet of People. But anyway, it's that uh, uh, Morestron. Uh, oh, right, Morestron. Thank you, yeah. Morestron. He's Morestron Orthodox. And uh, Vashinsky says, "Oh, one of those." And he's like, he presses a few <laughs> buttons, and you know the hymns start playing or whatever the 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 litany is. And he's like, "Oh, we we don't have to listen to that." So poor this poor guy who's getting buried, like his last rites are not being heard by anyone because apparently he's in the the wrong religion, uh, which is <laughs> it's a very sort of you know snooty upper class and kind of out of character thing for Vizinski to do because he was supposed to be the nice guy. Yeah, in, totally. In regards. Like that could uh, be yeah. could have been in a better story a very good tone setting moment. Yes. Of an yes. apathetic, cynical, and generally evil crew. Mm. <laughs> um, but that's not the case here. It's just sort of forgettable yeah. with like one guy who's unhinged and one guy who's actually kind of ends up being kind of noble. Yeah, and it's sort of a setup for you know the the uh, episode three cliffhanger where the Doctor and Sarah are going to be right. ejected in the same manner, and 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 also the source of the weirdest fight yeah. in, in <laughs> between Vishinsky and uh, Salomar. Salomar's trying to get. He, I, I don't know whether he doesn't want his own, you know, the blood on his hands, but he's like trying to push Vishinsky's hand onto the lever that will release. The coffins with the Doctor and Sarah in, yeah. Like why? Why not just do it yourself, dude? Yeah, I feel like you know it was it was they should have just scrapped that idea of like this. They obviously wanted to increase some suspense and tension, and like, are they gonna are they gonna get ejected or not? It's like the the fact that they're just in the coffins, I think, and bound is is enough, and you kind of like want uh, you could just have them land on it, you know, like in, in a struggle. Um, mm. but I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it I, cause I, I don't want to just pin this on like bad stunt coordination. It's bad stunt coordination, but it's like <laughs> the good stunts and good fights, uh, tell a story throughout, right. With different, yep. you know, uh, people getting the upper hand, um, changes in stakes, even in the middle of it. Um, and this one, they, they I see what they were trying to do, but they should have just said, no, that's, that's not working. And let's just have it be a random thing that they land on it and they get thrown out. Hmm. So, so we we have real three real options. For what the evil plot is in Planet of Evil? It could be the planet's quote unquote evil plot to uh, not let them leave and kill them all. Um, in which case, the Doctor and Sarah would have just escaped on the TARDIS. Well, the Doctor uh, would have. So it depends yeah. when this happens, right? Because if it's a, yeah. at the last minute where Sarah's still on the ship. And the doctor's a little late. Say his struggle with Sorensen and the TARDIS takes a little too long, maybe another twenty-five seconds, shall we say? Um, the planet just crash, boom, done. Everyone yep. dead. Yeah. So then the and doctor's very sad <laughs> <laughs> and uh, vows to, um, I don't know, be a antimatter <laughs> warrior, <laughs> destroying yes, the Western Empire. Anti- an anti-antimatter warrior, mm-hmm. uh, preventing other 
empires from finding out this technology. Um, it's well, we we should we should take a diversion there because this this is a, a story that well, first of all, it's the first time. Amazingly, it's the first time we see Tom Baker at the TARDIS controls. Right. Yeah. Um, crazy. Just one story before Pyramids of Mars, which the randomizer has taken us to. The, the randomizer does love to take us to stories before the stories or stories just after the stories we've done, mm-hmm. which I, I suppose is proof of just how random it is. Um, mm. But yeah, we, we, we see him in the same control room in Pyramids of Mars, where it's, it's much more used. And of course, that, that story famously has the episode three uh, break where they're like, oh, let's go forward in, to 1980 and see the result of the evil plot, if it succeeds. And there's kind of a similar thing happening here where I think, I think doesn't Sarah suggest that they leave at some point, like this isn't our fight. This isn't our struggle. Let's just go, you know, we're, we're late for a meeting with the unit. Let's go back. Yeah. Um, I forget if I think that doesn't happen in episode two or even earlier. I'm not sure, but it's, I like that because that is one of my constant gripes about, classic who and who in general we've discussed this before the fact that they never just think of getting into the tardis and going Mm. so it's nice to have that dealt with two stories in a row um but also especially this and the doctor comes up with something like oh we we can't we can't leave in the tardis because this will create a massive antimatter explosion but he's sort of assuming that they'll somehow get away from the planet with the antimatter and the planet seems perfectly capable of doing that by itself right um i mean yeah you could argue it's just like well if the planet does it everyone's dead right so mm. we have to save the people and get the antimatter back which he i don't know save save some of them um but with on the on the let's just go tangent i almost feel like this is like Sarah's first attempt at this and she does it again the next episode. Mm. And he does the whole alternate 1980 thing to just basically shut her up for good. You know, like, okay, Sarah, <laughs> stop asking me to do that. You know, whether it's a trick or not, like this is, we, we can't have a show if you keep asking <laughs> us to go before we fight the bad guys. So let's just do yeah. that. Yeah. That's, that's interesting that it's, it's a progression. I wonder if it was intended as that. Um, all right, so Maybe. that's the that's the Liz evil Slade planet doing that. Yeah. is evil plot. Okay, what's the second one? Uh, the if the evil plot is Sorensen's, mm. well, that wasn't that just wasn't going to succeed either, right? Because he's not going to get you're not going to escape this planet with that antimatter. It's just not going to happen. With because they have that magical force that can yeah. just stop you. Yeah, so it, I don't think that can succeed unless yeah. the only thing I could think of, right? Is if he figures out who the doctor is and what the TARDIS is, and yes. therefore he he surmises, and this is kind of a feature of better episodes that happen later when the the TARDIS and the Doctor is the X factor, where mm. it's like, oh, you know, I had this I had this evil plot, but now I realize the power that you have, and I want that, uh, so he could actually take the TARDIS and like get you know transport the antimatter away that way. And then you kind of wonder if he does do that, what does the antimatter monster do? You know, can it track the TARDIS if it goes like, you know, 20 galaxies that way? And can mm. it can it do anything? I guess we'd find out. Uh, you could have a whole season long arc. Well, we've seen creatures later that are that powerful. So like the puddle woman who uh, mm. fell in love with Bill, 
Mm-hmm. Apparently, it was powerful enough to travel in time into the end of the universe, and they couldn't flee from it. So, not a stretch to think that antimatter monster, which has magical force powers, could pursue Sorensen no matter how far he went, and that could like lay waste to big parts of the universe. In that, like, you you get sort of a Legopolis effect. Yeah, of, uh, yeah, that's kind of interesting. And it could could also be a keys to time and space um, season. You know, mm. early an early version of that proto version of that. Oh, it's almost like, like they go from story to story. And then episode four is always the anti-matter monster shows up and (laughs) destroys everything. It's like, it's like the end of a berserk level with evil. Just like, okay, everyone's dead. You just got to get out of here. Yeah. Guess we got to (laughs) go. The Langoliers. That's another one. You know, I'm trying to think of all these things where like destructive forces, just they're forces of nature that just come and kill everything at the end. Well, speaking of using the TARDIS, uh, the Doctor does have to uh, keep Salomar away from it, uh, who's got his own evil, potentially, plot thing going on. He he's, wants to use, or could potentially use the interior of the TARDIS, but he's just sort of interested in it. Mm-hmm. And I love that the Doctor holds him at bay by saying, as you can see, this isn't, you know, the outside is an ordinary London police box. Like, Someone from an empire of humans 300,000 years in the future, whatever this is, is going to <laughs> recognize a 1960s London police box. I don't know, but it did some history books, some history files. <laughs> what would what would be the equivalent today? Someone from ancient Egypt. It'd have to be yep. something mundane. Some some kind of like grain holding thing <laughs> on a shelf. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what it would be. Exactly. As uh. you can see from the hieroglyphics on the front, this is clearly a grain silo yeah. uh, from the second dynasty. Um, of course yeah. it is. I am not stupid. <laughs> it's like the line. <laughs> I think that's the line. Yeah. So uh, does but- he have much of an evil plot, Salomar? Salomar's evil plot is just that he's always right. Mm-hmm. And he, what he says goes, and he, like, without the Doctor even being there, it's sort of interesting to consider if if the Doctor hadn't been uh, hadn't responded to this distress signal, what would have happened? Well, they would have picked Sorensen up with his antimatter. They would have tried to got him on the, off the planet. It wouldn't have succeeded. They all would have died. Right. So right. I feel like all Salomar's roads lead to crashing into the planet because he's just a terrible commander. Yeah. So again, it depends sort of when this happens. So if the doctor never shows up, yeah, they all die because they can't take off and no one thinks to use the, some, the reactor accelerator on the force field or whatever, which drives the monster away. So the monster would have just yeah. killed everyone then. Um, if it happens later and they've already taken off, maybe, uh, is it possible Salomar just starts killing people and throwing people off the ship until he gets rid of the antimatter? And would that have worked? I feel like he's that unhinged and desperate mm. and such an extremist that he would eventually just like, you know what? We've tried every killing everybody else. Sorensen, get in the freaking coffin thing. You're, you're, we're, we're done with you. And maybe that that would have worked. I just don't see him trying stuff. You know mm. what? He, he 
he really strikes me as a kind of you know we've tried nothing we're all out of options kind of guy yeah that is that is basically even though there's MO. someone here pointing at a shelf full of options <laughs> dude no, we got all these other things we do there's really just nothing we can do we have to kill everyone and inject yes. them but we could do the you know we could stop the ship or we could do this other thing we could actually land it and it's like no we have to kill everybody yes and again, in the, in the, the Terrence Sticks novelization, in the, uh, you know, Terrence Sticks papering over the cracks style that he has, uh, hmm. he does add this thing about how Vashinsky really should have been the commander, but he didn't have friends in high places. Yeah, well, I think that's, you know, that's, you do think, like, Vashinsky looks older and more experienced. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they ever, did they ever address that directly? I don't think they do. Like, why is Not in the show. Yeah. But yeah, in the, in the novelization, uh, Terrence Six cannot let that one go. And he's like, Salomar is wearing some sort of gold chain that signifies that his family has connections. Like, does that, like, did, did script editors Dan just think that was extraneous? Cause I feel like that, that would have been a great line, even if it just took right? like a few seconds. And I, I'm reminded of like, actually, I think it was the movie, a few good men where, um, Jack, Jack Nicholson talks to his second in command and, and sort of talks about how he was promoted faster than he, the, his second in command was and sort of rubs it in his face a little bit. But, like it's a good character building line for both of them and really shows a bit of depth and, and reveals something about their motivations later on. And I think that would have been a very similar case here. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's too bad. But they're, they're, they're just, they're just cookie cutter space soldiers, unfortunately. Yeah. And there's no disco outfits, plunging V-necks. And I think maybe you would sort of intuit in, you know, in the highly stratified class culture of, of Britain in the seventies, maybe you would intuit that, you know, Salomar is is a rich kid, uh, yeah. just because he 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 shouts his received pronunciation English accent louder than the rest. Hmm. <laughs> he's just sort of, you would just understand. Oh yeah, he's he's some privileged um, kid who just you know rose through the ranks too fast because he he you know daddy's got a friend somewhere. You know, it's I funny. Know. I um, I remember the sh- when when he was doing the shouty bits later in like episode three and four. I I remembered him suddenly from another Doctor episode, which was mm. the Ribos operation, where he does some shouty bits. And I will say this: his fashion sense does not improve dramatically. <laughs> anyway, little teaser for oh. when we get get to that episode. Oh, I'm super excited for the Ribos operation. Um, Me too. Yeah. He's it's it's a fascinating character. Yeah. I don't know. Um, it, but speaking of privilege, speaking of the obvious privilege that he has, I, I do like that line. You know, to go back to when the, the Doctor and Sorensen are talking um, about sort of Sorensen's obligation as scientist. He has that great line about how it it is our privilege as scientists to investigate, and that gives us this responsibility. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was a, was a beautiful line, uh, and probably one of my favorites of of the story. Just that moment there, the, the doctor bringing up scientific privilege. It's, you know, it's not quite as neat as you were. You were so preoccupied with whether you, whether you could. You didn't think about whether you should. But it, you know, still still holds up today. You know, Doctor Who sometimes gets a bad rap for being like full of techno babble. Um, mm-hmm. Really, not really. I don't know. Sophisticated is the word, but I think probably sometimes it's talked about as like sort of this very basic iconic view of sort of scientific concepts, which uh, you kind of either like or you don't. And, but um, what it doesn't get enough credit for in the original series is 
it's reverence and respect for science and and mm. the scientific method um and and that idea of um intellect well i mean it does get credit for this but i mean intellect rooted in science i think is kind of what what it's really trying to do and and showing that that is sort of a gateway to not just understanding but solving real problems and i think i think that that permeates throughout many eras and i think it ge- it often generates lines not often but every now and then generates lines like this one that i think so, um are some of the best dialogue in the series yeah so here's the line uh you and i are scientists professor we buy our privilege to experiment at the cost of total responsibility Mm-hmm. yeah i like it i do I like too it. it's it's actually it's and tom baker likes it because it's the only thing from planet of evil on his official website <laughs> i would love to see that pinned up somewhere or engraved somewhere yeah. uh right at, at an institution somewhere i hope someone so i hope someone's done that if you I have, have right in <laughs> leave us yeah. a review if, <laughs> if there are any scientists out there listening please please pin this up in your lab we buy our privilege to experiment at the cost of total responsibility mm. uh, not that we're saying you're irresponsible yeah scientists it's just that doctor who makes us think that you are uh about to destroy the planet at any moment it's it's uh, a because you had a hangover <laughs> We've been there, but I got to say, just to close the thought on it, I, I think it's a pretty hip, good Hippocratic oath for science. Honestly, yeah. I like right. it. Total responsibility. Nice work, so, Doctor Who. Yeah. Uh, no, so, how do you not about... like this one, Chris? At least a little bit. Uh, I mean, come on, it's yeah, it's a bit of a yeah. Dalek, not quite an Ogron. It's banged yeah. up Dalek, kind of a boring Dalek in the background, wobbly. Had a few too many drinks. Anytime that Tom Baker and Liz Sladen are on screen in this episode, it's a Dalek. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, it's no grown. Um, it, it was interestingly, you know, as, as I've often said, like the BBC doesn't repeat enough Doctor Who. It, it did repeat this one. Um, and mm. the repeats, like almost immediately, and the repeats not, did not do too well. It had like 10 million people watch this on the first outing. That's as many people as watched Voyage of the Damned, which is still a record, I think, in new Doctor Who. Wow. Um, yeah. 10 million people pretty much for all four episodes. And then the repeat was like 5 million, 4 million, 3 million. Like <laughs> it did not hold up. Yeah. Well, word of mouth back then, I guess. What was the thing we talked about last time? The rating index. They had some kind of index at the BBC. Yeah. Yeah. Audience appreciation index, something yeah. like that. Um, I don't, Tapered I don't off. Being able to, yeah. <laughs> you got, we got to, we got to look at sort of like for these four episode serials, which has the worst mm. tapering of the audience appreciation index. Cause the Crotons is pretty bad too. I think. Yeah. That's, that's a great question. Yeah. Uh, in terms of just in terms of what, when did people tune out? Uh, mm. You know, the last couple of stories in the Crotons and uh, even surprisingly in the regeneration, first regeneration story, the 10th planet, there was this tremendous drop off of uh, audience towards the end so I, lo- I love the thought of philip hinchcliffe asking his analytics guy what was our completion rate on that story <laughs> uh yes storytellers that's 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 man we need we need more charts to tell us right, what to do was, on doctor who it was definitely not Moneyball in those days i'll, I'll say that <laughs> all righty well, Shall we, uh, I think that's about all we can say about Planet of Evil. Yeah, um, it'd be evil to go on. Ooh. Um, <laughs> oh. 
I'm here all week, guys. Uh, shall we do the figure out where we're going next? Let's do that. Absolutely. Huh? Yes. Right. Randomizer. You all can right. Take your so evil. Time to reintroduce our totally evil randomizer. Yeah. Um, we'll we'll which... raise it some chaotic good. <laughs> and all right. And you've, can... you've got the spreadsheet there. Spreadsheet uh, open. Stories from 1 to 297. All right. Um, we have we have broken down all Doctor Who. If you're new to Pull to Open, we've broken down all Doctor Who into 297 discrete stories. Um, and that's in the spreadsheet. And while Peter's looking at that spreadsheet, I go to random.org, uh, which has true random number generation based on atmospheric noise yes. uh, rather than the usual computerized attempt to have randomness via algorithm, which doesn't really work. And we can tell it's totally random because we've already, as we've already mentioned in this uh, episode of Pull to Open, uh, there's the there's sort of this weird bunching up of which stories the randomizer yeah. has chosen. Right, there are massive gaps, especially massive gaps. in the in the Baker era and the Tennant era, and definitely in the Matt Smith era. Like we haven't yeah. had a single Matt Smith story. So well, we have we've never done Colin Baker or Sylvester McCoy. Yeah. Shorter runs, yeah. certainly, but also we, you know. Yeah, Just and also no Eccleston, no, no no Paul McGann. How could that be? Um, <laughs> well, now, now you, you're you're doing it. Now you're, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm dooming us to the TV movie, aren't I? Um, it's all good, all right. but then, Chris. I feel like we need more process here. I feel yeah. like we need to first prime the randomizer. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you like to give the randomizer challenges. Mm, we must prime which, it. You've you challenged it two weeks ago to uh, or two episodes ago to give us a true missing story, hmm. uh, not just this you know tenth planet fourth episode is missing kind of thing, but a true missing story, right? Uh, that we can really sink our teeth into. Uh, well, this time in celebration of our earlier discussion, I'm going to dare it yet again. Give us a long one. <laughs> no. I'm shooting us in the foot here. Wow. And, now we have divided Trial of a Time Lord into its requisite parts, yeah. right? So it, it it's I'm really aiming more for Dalek's Master Plan or War Games on this. Yeah, yeah. I, those, I will those. settle for Doctor Who and the Silurians <laughs> or Ambassadors of Death. Any of those seven parters will do. Or the Invasion, oh, boy. which is nice and long. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, <laughs> I guess the sooner we get those out of the way, yeah. uh, the easier the rest of this journey <laughs> is going to be. All right. So you've issued two challenges to the randomizer. I don't know if I. I, I don't know if I'm really comfortable with the last one I just did. Summer. <laughs> 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 it's like, do we have time for that? Maybe. Is this is yeah? I was going to say this is the equivalent of taking an umbrella along on your summer vacation. Well, maybe it's uh, like I think the reverse psychology is going to work exactly. here a little bit. You know, it's going to yep. give us something easy. So. Yeah, see yeah. what happens. I probably shouldn't right, have said so that a lot. All right. Let's Here we go. This. Are you ready? Three. You're going to give me the countdown? Three again. Two. <laughs> one. Don't blink. One hundred. Ooh. Wow. An even hundred? No way. An even one hundred. Well, my friend, we have arrived yet again in the Tom Baker era, but in the middle of the key to time saga, it is the androids of Tara. Ooh, nice. Okay, that's I. So the randomizer did pick up on me talking about the the keys to time mm. season earlier, 
and obviously thought, well, that's a good idea. Let's uh, let's see some more of that fabulous Black Guardian guy. Yeah, absolutely. With with the bird on the head. Well, I, don't, uh, I don't know if he's actually in this one, but it is in uh, that era. And uh, yeah. I kind of remember this one a little bit. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's a cute one. I mean, if you can have a cute Key to Time <laughs> episode. Um, but there's I'm some fun sure, stuff yeah, to be I, had here, as I recall. I definitely did not see. It's going to be our first Romana story. Um. Yeah. Right. And Our first uh, first Romana story. First first, first Romana. Um yeah. No. Well that's exciting. It's gonna be good. It's gonna be interesting, like um doing these key to time episodes in, in a strange order. You would never do it this way, but we're doing it this way. We're coming in and coming out every now and then. Uh, uh but this is not like they don't actually have the randomizer in this in this uh story, do they? They have not it invented it yet. The key to time is what leads the doctor to invent the randomizer. So uh, it's kind of like the randomizer showing us its origins. Right. Right. Very long origin story. Hmm. I get, I think I get this mixed up with mask of Mandroga with Mandroga or whatever that was. Mandragora. Mandragora. Thank you. Uh, Which is another one uh, set in a sort of feudal. That's, Mm -hmm. that's actually feudal. Whereas this is futuristic feudal. Yeah. This is other planet feudal. It's yeah. good times, though. Yeah. There's castles and stuff, cool. though. Counts, etc. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to Tom Baker. I will never have too much Tom Baker, especially Tom Baker that I haven't seen. Awesome. And we, I'm looking forward to doing this all again uh, with everyone who has been listening to listening again. It'll be fun as we uh, embark again on uh, more Tom Baker and our first Key to Time, our first Romana and First everything. And thank you all for listening to us here. Um, this has been Pull to Open. Uh, it is a podcast. In case you weren't sure, this is uh, a thing you can subscribe to into it in an app, in a podcast app. If you're not in that, encountering us somewhere on the web, uh, go and subscribe. Fire up your podcast app. Fire up your iTunes. Fire up your Spotify. Anywhere you get podcasts. Go ahead. Find us. We're Pull to Open. Subscribe to the program. Uh, feel free to leave a review. We love those reviews. Keep them coming. Um, if you are leaving a review, we may even take what you have written and talk about it on the show, which we like to do. Um, yeah. And also let us know if you were our thousandth follower on TikTok. Uh, we, we did promise some sort of reward for that. So uh, please do write in if that was you. If that was you. Yeah. Actually, I screen cap. It's not clear who it is, but we'll reach out. <laughs> it's an interesting... Um, interesting uh, handle shall we say but yeah oh, please reach okay. out we'll get that we'll get that no prize to you no it's a prize prize we'll get you the prize to you um as soon as we maintain make contact contact will be made um follow us on the socials we you know we, tiktok we are at pull to open uh we're having a lot of fun on t- tiktok sharing the videos um it's been great we're also on twitter and on instagram at pull to open 63 And uh, we will see you next time. Thank you. Bye, everyone.